they're unavoidable at this rate. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Box to Box. I'm Alex Purry alongside Akshay Wadwani, Jeff Hauser, and Jesse Levine. Joining us is Ben Santilli and Rusty Gorlick. We got a big show, lots to break down from Ronaldo's hat trick to sanctions against Chelsea. Those are always fun to more Champions League and some pretty big results in the Premier League as well. But let's dive right into it. Jeff, you were desperate to have Ben on. Ronaldo scored a hat trick. We know you two have squared off uh, with your differing views on Ronaldo's importance to United and just views on Ronaldo in general. So I'll let you two take it away. Ronaldo with a hat trick that gave United a 3-2 win over Tottenham Hotspur this weekend. Let's just start at the beginning and catch people up who are unaware. Ben has quite famously on our show said that Manchester United got worse by signing Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, this isn't a case of, you know, mediocre players who, uh, who you know, don't provide stats for their team. Ronaldo scored three goals. Uh, he has 18 in all competitions for United, not only leading the way, but the next highest striker on the team is um, a rapist who we don't name with six. Bruno has nine, Sancho has five, Rashford has five. Uh, I, we, we have to go past guys like Fred and McTominay before we get to Cavani or Martial, who have been irrelevant. So this, this is a team that needed a big-time player who scores big-time goals. He saved them in the Champions League on numerous occasions in the first half of the year, and now he whips out a hat trick against Spurs. And, I mean, all props in the world to Harry Maguire. What a great captain, driving his teammate on to score a third goal, motivating him with the desire and need to score a third goal. Incredible work. But, but Ben, let me know how Ronaldo made this team worse by scoring more league goals than Messi has in the entire Uber Eats league this year. Can I start off by saying that was an incredible monologue? Like yeah, that was fantastic. Say, ben, we really threw it to the we really threw it to the line. <laughs> not, but you know, not to, well, Ben knows he's coming on that what he's gonna get into. He know he knows he's gonna have to defend the Sixers and all that. It's, it's an unwritten rule when you come on. But also, also Jeff is about two and a half hours po- out of surgery, so for him to deliver that to start off a show right after his surgery is absolutely brilliant. Honestly, oh, Jeff, wow. did you write that pre or post surgery? <laughs> Neither. That's off the dome. <laughs> Okay, well, since it's off the dome, I'll remind you a little bit about where United were last year at this point in the season in the table versus where they are this year in the table at this point in the standing. So if you want to see a decrease in value, I would say that that's where you're at right now. You're behind Arsenal in the table. Sorry, Rusty. Um, Whoa. But like, there's already so much wrong with this. Yeah. Whoa. That's a, that's a low blow, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but if you really want to say like you got better, like, did, did you go from second place to challenging for the title? Cause like, I, I don't think, I don't see it. Like has the team been in shambles like every other week, except last week. Like it's like every time you guys have a win, all of a sudden you're world beaters. And then in the intermittent time, like when you lose like a bad game here and there and Harry Maguire's garbage for about, you know, three straight weeks and everyone's calling for his head and uh, you know, the world is falling. I mean, Ronaldo just had like a bunch of games off cause he was hurt. Right. He had like two games where he didn't play coming back fresh. But, and also, if you want to think about that too, Cavani being irrelevant, other people who shall not be named on the podcast being irrelevant, right? Why are they irrelevant? Why, why can they perform so well last year in a system where you have a shared team atmosphere? And then now, why does it all fall on one player? It's because he takes away from a lot of the team game of the aspect, right? Like, why are all of your other strikers irrelevant? Because he's the guy and he has to be the guy, but he's not the guy enough to put you in second place the way that you had a whole that was team. That your main issue with him at Juventus uh, for the past yeah. few years as well. Right. It's wherever he goes, he becomes, he becomes the problem rather and, and you can say he's the solution. Okay. You got a hat trick against Tottenham. I mean, we know the history of the Tottenham. Okay. <laughs> yes, we do. First of all, what, what other strikers did we have going into the season that would have replaced the production of Cristiano Ronaldo? Had he not been there? Can you can you name me a few? Uh, because see, the closest the option I can think of is Mason Greenwood, year. who was having the season of his life before he made a terrible decision that is probably going to end his career. Yeah, Ben. Well, ben, I, I think I think it's important somewhere. to note adding Ronaldo may have been um, it like surplus to the requirements of the team at, when the season ended last. But you can't you can't do anything but acknowledge that Martial falling out of form has very little to do with Ronaldo and a lot to do with him just being terrible. Rashford needing surgery on his shoulder not you know not being with the team until late October early November and just kind of struggling in the minutes that he has gotten since then has been unfortunate um we won't even mention the the fiasco 
with with a player that whose name will be uh, not mentioned. Jaden Sancho took an early part of the season, struggled to bet in with the team, but has since kind of come to life the last couple of weeks at the very least. And then there is the the giant Ole issue that whether you like it or not was a part of the problem uh, at the start of the season and and even at the end of last year. And you wanted to compare where we are this year with last year. Well, this year we have everything to play for in an at-home tie in the round of 16 in the Champions League. And last year we were already in the Europa League everything on our way. Everything to play for. Everything to play for, you say. Um, um are, are you are you one are you potentially one point off Manchester City? Potentially, by the end of the week, one point off. Everything to play for in the second leg. I meant that we he's didn't. Talking, we haven't. Just talking I'm talking Champions about League. specifically talking the Champions League. Right. I'm right. saying. But when they signed Ronaldo, okay. But people thought, and there was a time last season where you thought that United could potentially challenge City for a bit. Obviously, City ended up winning the league quite comfortably. But the expectations this season, even before they signed Ronaldo, were that United would be in a title race, not in a scrap for top four. And look, obviously, when you have someone yeah. like Ronaldo who provides the amount of goals that he does, that steps up in the way that he does, yes, obviously, it's going to make you better. You're going to win more games. But there is a risk that overall he is making it. When you, when you revolve play around him, it takes away from guys like Rashford. It doesn't allow them to get out. This is big from you, Perry. This is yeah. really big from you. I'm just You've saying, grown. I'm just saying there's another side to this. That's all I'm saying. You know, Alex, Alex let, me, let me hop in here real quick because I'm curious, you know, what position does Ronaldo play? Striker. Great. Passenger. What position does Marcus Rashford play? Hold on, hold on. on. So, striker. So, 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 no. so what? We haven't no, no. used him as an out-and-out striker it, it in years, Curry, which is to my detriment. I believe uh, he should be used as an out-and-out striker, but we don't. We simply don't. We use him as a winger now. Let's, let's get back uh, to hold, Jesse. Hold, hold on. Let, let me get to my point here. Okay? Manchester United are fourth in goals scored. They are 12th in goals against. Last I checked, Ronaldo is a striker and he does not play defense. It is not Ronaldo's fault that Harry Maguire sucks. For Ron, they bought for $38 million. It's 10 times worse than Ben White, who I claimed on this podcast was much better at the time, okay? Proving so. Brilliant performance against Leicester, by the way. Okay? It, it can't have that Juan Bissaka can't cross a road going forward and can't play defense. Luke Shaw is out of form, and Alex Tellez is a decent backup left back, okay? With all of that, Victor Lindelof is okay. Phil Jones, we don't talk about, okay? And as Jeff said, he'd probably take McTominay over any of those guys playing defense as it is. Ronaldo is not a defensive problem because he doesn't play defense. But he it can not- be, a, but he doesn't play defense and that makes him a defensive problem because if you can't put 11 men behind the ball, that's one player that's taken out of okay. somebody who can cover. He it's does Manchester- not work back. Hold on, Ben. No, 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 no. Because he doesn't play defense. Jeff, let me, let me, let me get to my point one, one more second. It's Manchester United. They don't need to normally play with 11 people behind the ball, okay? This is not Burnley where you need to defend the entire game. There should be a guy that plays at the midfield. And I'm not saying that Ronaldo is the perfect fit because his hold-up play is mediocre. At there best, we go. Okay? I'm not saying Ronaldo's the end-all, be-all solution. But what I am saying is that the defense, that's much of an offensive standpoint. And if and it, Sure, but do you guys feel like he's part of a project? Like, well, do do on, you Rusty, feel like he's wanna, helping them build, like, build to the future? Hold on, let's give yeah, I, I have some takes on this. I think more than anything that for Manchester United on the pitch, it's a structural problem in terms of the way that their formation is. Because I was watching Cristiano Ronaldo off the ball in uh, the match against Tottenham, and there are times where he would just like drop back into midfield on offense when uh, United have the ball so he can receive the ball uh, deeper and, you know, drive at the opposition defense, which, you know, is something good strikers do from time to time. The issue with that is if he didn't get the ball, he would just stand there. And when United turned the ball over, he would still stand there. So there are times where Fred was the one who started behind him in midfield, Ronaldo being the forward, Fred being the midfielder and Fred would just be the one pressing. And then if you, if you pass the ball behind Ronaldo, then you have basically a one-on-one with Scott McTominay in front of Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof. No, it Rusty. It's so easy for a half for- decent attack. Rusty, you forgot to watch the match. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You're telling on yourself. It's, it's really brutal. Um, please. We, we forgive you. Uh, McTominay set, didn't well, play. If I could finish. McTominay <laughs> didn't play, my guy. <laughs> okay, but I'm saying, hypothetically, uh, if you'd let me finish, any smart, any half-decent team that's not Tottenham, if you pass behind 
Cristiano Ronaldo, whoever's in midfield, whether it's Scott McTominay, Nemanja Matic, like it was against Tottenham, two big white guys, forgive me for getting them confused. Um, so no matter what, you're going to, if you pass the ball behind Cristiano Ronaldo when he drops back and is not defending and is not trying, um, then the issue is you have a one-on-one or a two-on-two, uh, whatever you like, with two slow midfielders and really two slow defenders as well. And um, I think from a structural standpoint, uh, that's an issue for Manchester United. And I think when you can really make that space in the center of the pitch because of Ronaldo, that's where you run into problems. I, I think Rusty brings on a good point, but I think there's a second part of the problem as well is, you know, Jeff, actually hop in here for a second. What is Manchester United starting lineup? Can, can, can you give me their starting 11 that they play? Could not tell you because it changes on a daily basis. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to give it to you if, if Akshay wants to just, you know, take a minute. Uh, it's Ronaldo up front. It's uh, our, our lineup has changed the last couple of weeks because a bunch that's, of guys had COVID or like and you're weekly already injuries. having to qualify this, Jeff. Okay, okay. So, 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 so Bruno didn't play because he had COVID. Ronaldo didn't. Okay, so, so you want our starting lineup? It's Ronaldo up top. It's Bruno mm-hmm. at the 10. It's Sancho on the wing. It's mm-hmm. Alanga on the wing, sometimes getting rotated because he's a youngster. He needs you know, some break. It's Fred and McTominay in the midfield. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, Maguire, it's Maguire on the bench where he belongs. It's uh, Lindelof and Veron at center back. It's De Gea and goal. And then it's Dallo and Tellez on at the fullback position. But, 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 but that's, your lineup, Jeff, that's your starting lineup. Paul, I was going to say, that's What's your starting lineup. lineup? That, that is not their lineup. And the, But my point here is that it seems that they don't have a core starting lineup. It's Maguire at times, sometimes paired with Veron, sometimes paired with Lindelof. For God's sakes, the fact that Maguire plays on the left side of the center back and Veron plays on the right while they're playing, while Veron's lefty, Maguire's a righty for starters, I can't understand um, in terms of just being able to set yourself up better defensively and be able to play the ball out of the back. That's number one. Number two is the fact that their midfield I at times seems to be Fred and McTominay, but when Pogba's healthy, is Pogba in there? Oh, sometimes. Okay, well, then sometimes we're going to put in Rashford, sometimes Alanga. Um, sometimes they've gone with Cavani and Ronaldo up top with Bruno playing at a 10, almost like a diamond midfield. Uh, they don't have a cohesive starting 11. And that's the thing. Could you really say that about them last year? Because last year it felt like it was a lot more, it was a lot clearer who they were going to line so, up and how they were going to line up. Even you know, then, I would say last play. year it was the same issue. Just yeah, not in true, the, but less I, in the I, midfield I and more there's in the like, general like argument this though, that by relying on a player who's not as Ronaldo, uh, not as uh, pacey in Ronaldo, because Ronaldo just does not have the pace that he wants. He's not as fast as, uh, well, we won't say his name, as Rashford, as the other He's, winger. His name is not Voldemort. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I feel like that's where a lot of United's attacking threat was coming from last year. And yes, Ronaldo scores goals, but I, I think United have had to adapt to the fact that he doesn't have much pace that, you know, what he's going to really thrive on are those crosses into the box. And I'm not saying that that's not how they didn't play last season, but I think that that might be limiting what they could do overall as an entire unit going forward. Right. That's going forward. That still doesn't solve their 12th place defensive structure. That's true. That, I mean, that, that, this is the point. It's like they, you, you invested in a center back, um, you, you, you have a, you know, home run player in Pogba who they just have decided to consistently not put a good partner around him. For the life of me, I, I, don't, I don't understand why Fred and McTominay, instead of just signing a better number six or a number eight for more of a number six, would be a good fit with Pogba. They've chosen to consistently ignore that. And because of that, their ability to be as a cohesive unit has struggled. And I think that you could look at Ronaldo, but Ronaldo is not the reason that defense sucks. Mm-hmm. And anyone that blames a striker for the reason that defense sucks just doesn't understand socks. Well, let's move this on. I think that was a pretty heated debate. We all got our <laughs> points in. But let's move this along to the Champions League. Lots to break down uh, for this week, but let's start with a big result last week. PSG have bottled it yet again. They were 2-0 up at the Bernabeu, or 2-0 up on aggregate, uh, courtesy of two Mbappe own goals scoring against, uh, scoring against PSG. Sorry, <laughs> scoring against Real Madrid. Um, but no, 2-0 up on aggregate in the 60th minute. And an error for Donnarumma. 
Real Madrid capitalized, and PSG just totally capitulated. How does this happen every single year? The players come, this happens. The players come and go. The managers come and go. But this seems to remain a constant for them. If I'm starting off, I think this is kind of what Akshay and I were talking about on the podcast last week is a lack of leadership from their defense. And while we look at someone like Sergio Ramos, who hasn't played all season, there's a lack of quality and leadership that was in the back, lack of professionalism as well. Um, Scoring goals is one thing, but any team, you know, that are in the Champions League at this point should be able to win a game where they're up 2-0 on aggregate at any given point. And for them to not just bottle it, but bottle it the way that they did all in the second half, um, there's there's a bunch of things that need to be looked at. One is, is, is defense good enough um, to be going forward? Who do they really need to sign? It's not a 35-year-old center back. Second is who on that defense shouldn't be playing next season? And third, I think the big conversation should be talked about the probably the most underrated player of an entire generation, which is probably Kareem Benzema. Well, we'll get to Benzema and Real Madrid, but I think Can we, we start I, I'm i about to disappear. Can we get to Benzema? He's only underrated because coming up next to him, who, you know, and I mean literally next to him, was a man with more talent, more flair, more finesse, a better jawline, Olivier Giroud, <laughs> the beautiful man, the perfect man, this show's favorite man, winner of the captain of our sexiest 11 all those years ago. That's why he's he's living in the shadow of a, of a god. Right, like he he can be Hercules. He's next to Zeus. That's his problem. <laughs> that, that's really that's, that's the best one, Jeff. You're you're on fire today. I, the best I will say, seeing Ben roll his eyes, he thought he was going to compare him to Ronaldo, and then, and then as soon as as soon as Jeff mentioned Drew, just like I, <laughs> I was so glad. I really thought that was the path you were taking. <laughs> I will say, if you look at your. Giroud's top five goals versus Benzema's top five goals all time. I think it's not even close to Olivia Giroud. I'm pretty sure Giroud played the 90 in the World Cup final, which you can't say about Ronaldo when he won the Euros. He didn't play the whole match, so. Are we blaming ACLs on players now? <laughs> That's entirely. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm <laughs> absolutely joking. But I, I, I have a deep love for Olivier Giroud as an Arsenal fan. I know he left, but it wasn't his fault. But great, great lad. Great striker. Very underrated. So is Benzema, though. But different types of underrated. Yeah, back to PSG though. I mean, yeah, tough, tough scene all around, really. I mean, uh, reports of like having everybody in the locker room getting the cops called on them and stuff because literally everybody was going at it, including the like president and general. Like the entire thing was just an absolute chaotic show down there, right? I mean, they're just a mess of a club, right? And they are exactly what goes to show you when you don't really build a roster, you build a dream team. Like, this is like if you had your fantasy football team in real life, Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe. I mean, we, I mean, I've mentioned before how I think Neymar is super overrated and has never delivered anything in his life. And, you know, I mean, that has to be the start, right? Everybody can say he's a five-star skiller. I mean, he looks great if you're in a futsal game on a, on a, on a court somewhere. I mean, he'd be great as a Harlem Globetrotter. But that's what this team really is, right, is that the Harlem Globetrotters, and as soon as they have to play a real team, they can't, they can't win. Yeah, I'd like to build off of that because I think PSG are just making the same exact mistakes uh, that Barcelona did and that landed Barcelona in the spot they are today, which is basically just signing a bunch of superstars and expecting them to just play well together. And that's not how soccer works. Uh, That's not how it's ever worked. And that's how Barcelona very harshly found out it doesn't work. Uh, You can't just have a massive payroll uh, full of big name talent. Uh, if they don't have winning mentalities and if they don't enjoy playing together with each other. I mean, you know, these PSG players that we look at any of them, especially the defense, uh, Jesse, you hopped on the defense earlier. And I think it should be said, do you look at guys like Prisnel Kimpembe and Marquinhos and say, wow, those guys are winners. I was like, would you describe those Marquinhos. guys as winners? Yeah, there's very few players in the PSG squad that I would describe as a winner. You know, when I think of winners, I think of guys on Bayern Munich. Like those, almost every single player in that starting lineup Madrid. has I mean, proved that he's – Exactly. Players have won the Champions League three to four times. And that, that's the Kareem Benzema difference, right? Benzema, what is Modric. he known for throughout his Modric, career? Underrated, Cruz, so he's a winner. David Alba. Kareem Benzema is a guy who wins PSG you matches. PSG Real Madrid. Difference between PSG and Real Madrid. One is a football club, a proper club. The other one is a brand. PSG are a brand. They are all about image. Their product is off the pitch. It's not. I think. I think um, 
we there's sort of a similar issue to to the Ronaldo issue, but times three with PSG because you have three guys who just are walking half the time and Messi, uh, yeah. Neymar, and even Kylian Mbappe who is 23 years old still. There's no there's really no excuse, especially for Mbappe. Um, to be walking like that the way he does in most games. But I think the, the larger issue is when you have three guys um, who are, you know, the start of your defense, really. In the modern game, you know, your whole team goes back, the whole team goes forward, right? Um, pretty much to some degree. Everyone contributes at least. And I think um, when you have three guys who just aren't contributing on one side of the ball, the midfield has to do so much more work because either they have to, uh, you know, press out and uh, press the back line and speed up the other team's attack to try and force a turnover, or you're just, you know, getting the ball held, held against you all the time. And I think, um, you know, if you can't press, if you look at the stats for like Bayern Munich, they're world-class attackers, they're pressing, but for PSG, they're just not. And I think that goes back to the point of um, being a brand rather than a team or being, yeah, a dream team rather than a well-built team. And I do want to add as well uh, is, do we consider Mauricio Pochettino to be a winning coach either? Because this is a guy who literally developed a reputation at Tottenham for not winning. And this is the coach PSG expects to take them to the next level. Pochettino, the guy who is literally known for falling short for not winning when it matters. I think you're being harsh on Pochettino though, Akshay, because I would agree. Well, Pochettino took a mediocre Spurs and made them one of the best teams in Europe. I mean, they were. I want to be clear. I do. I want to be clear. I'm not. I'm not blaming Pochettino for this loss. I think this is entirely on the, not entirely, but mostly on the players. But I do also. I think it's another check against PSG. Is why would you bring in a manager who's known for the opposite of doing what you want him to do? And and ironically, they they had fired the coach that had reached the Champions League final with them, and then went on to win it with Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it comes down to PSG, right, it, it all starts with the leadership and them thinking that they can just buy their way to a championship because I'm a big believer in style and, and your team has to be a team. And that's why I think a lot in the Premier League and other places, coaches get fired way too frequently in soccer before they really allow them to build a project, right? Like it has to be a project. And if you see that it's not working, then you have to change, right? If, but if you're progressing the way that Pochettino can take teams to do, like Tottenham, right? If you're progressing then you have to kind of stick with that coach and keep things moving along, right? Because they have a vision. They want to get players with certain types of attributes that you're looking for so that we can all play together as one fluid unit. For And, and I'll harp back to Juventus, right? When Antonio Conte is managing Juventus and pretty much any team Antonio Conte goes to, he brings players with a similar outlook on how they want to play. And that's what turns them in to like from Inter being like a mid-table side to winning the league, right? Because they have Arsenal a vision. Arteta now. Absolutely. Exactly. If you if you have an understanding of what you're trying to do and everybody's on the same page and everybody's playing together, then you're all set. Versus PSG, it's like, well, Messi's going to get his 50 goals in league on. You know, Mbappe's going to get his 50 goals in league on. Neymar's going to, you know, five-star skill himself out of his own shoes. Okay. But like at the end of the day, like when they're not a cohesive unit and like defense, right? Like half these guys are only good on FIFA. Okay. These guys all have great FIFA ratings, but they're crap. Marquinhos has never been anything quick, worth quick correction, writing Messi about. has two goals in Liga, two. Uh, as many goals as Divock Origi has in the Premier League for Liverpool. But um, he, He's got an insane amount of assists in Liga, which I do give him credit for. He's I think assist, that goes but... to show, though. I think that goes to show. He has like 11, right? Something like okay, that. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Let's be he's clear. He was, Messi player. was brought in to be a provider. For yeah, yeah I mean, he is a team player as opposed to some of the other exactly. guys, right? What, exactly. is, what is Neymar's assist total right now? Yeah, that's Neymar weird. doesn't it, pass the ball. Is it non-zero? Yeah, Neymar's the yeah. weird, sort of the weird wrench here. I think if you had just Mbappe and Messi, that could work. But I think having the three of them just throws off the balance of any team. And also, um, as you guys were saying, with just the whole structure of the team, like Leonardo El Calafi. Um, if if you're gonna hire any coach in the world for this team, it would have been Zinedine Zidane, in my opinion. He would have been the perfect coach for this team. Let's let's also note uh, Mbappe, Messi, and Neymar, three attackers who play completely different attacking styles and yes, are expected yes. to work together in the same system. Mbappe is a complete get in behind, 100% running behind defenses, balls over the top. Messi is pretty much the opposite of that at this stage in his Messi's career. You're building through, through the middle with people. him. And Neymar is somewhere in between. I don't even know what Neymar's attacking style is at this point. Neymar's attacking style it's, is basically uh, passing the ball and let him do it's whatever. It's dancing the bachata so, in the middle of the field. Yeah. Yeah. 
I want to hop in. We, we spoke about a little bit of tactics and formation and the way the PSG plays. Is anyone else not shocked of their stubbornness not to change formation? Like, I look at this roster, and I think right off the bat, I see a 4-2-3-1. Um, be able to play Messi as a 10. Messi's not Messi doesn't have the same speed. He, he doesn't need to be able – instead of I, – I like Akimi and the ability to overlap with Messi cutting in, but it wasn't working. So – Messi at the 10, Di Marie on the right, Neymar at the left, and Mbappe up top. You want Messi as a provider? You want someone that wants to be able to make those runs, get behind? Why not play the guy through the middle, right? You want to be able to be able to just, you know, when, when Messi gets double teamed, put the ball out to the wide. Neymar and Di Maria, great options, okay? Then, it's, then we have Verratti who works really hard in the midfield and brings, you know, I would have brought someone else in. I mean, Vinaldum's not a bad option, but he's not defensive enough. I would have instead of looked for more defensive option. Then I think we have a better a better team. But the stubbornness and lack of ability to change tactics and formation to me is really puzzling because the players are talented there, but it wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't coming together. You know what that so, stubbornness is down to? That stubbornness is down to the fact that they can get away with it in league on week after week. It's true. Incredibly weak teams. And these are team PSG is a team that just expects things to go their way because they do when they're playing farmers. And I know Rusty, we were talking about this league on before the show started. And I know you rate them highly, but the reality is PSG are not used to, they're not used to pressure. The moment that Real Madrid equalized uh, when Benzema made it one, one, they were under pressure, and PSG were they, they were clueless. They had no idea what to do. And this, this is the situation that came up against uh, with Manchester United a few years ago, with Barcelona a few years ago, because, you know, they win, they, they expect everything to be just very comfortable for them. That, that's the mentality that these players have developed, and that's what happens when you have zero competition. When you have zero competition domestically, the moment you come up against one in, in, in Europe, against a side like Real Madrid, or a Bayern Munich, or you know, a Liverpool or Manchester City, as we saw last season, the four-one d- defeat on aggregate. D- d- they have no answer, none, and it's because the domestic competition, the level, is not high enough, and they're just not used to competing with teams that are that on their caliber. Alex, I'll I'll boil it down to conclude this um, by saying I think I think I'll summarize your point as PSG are just not used to having to want to win in order to win. I think that's yeah. pretty much what it is. I, I do think before we wrap this up, we have to give credit to Real Madrid though, because okay. and, and particularly to a few players, to Benzema, obviously, but to to Cruz, who maybe didn't have such a great game, but is proven even at his age that he is still a serial winner. Uh, to Luka Modric, to Kamavinga, who came on and I thought made a very big difference. I mean, the, the way yeah, that great. Real Madrid just took control of this game and just turned it around, basically had a snap of their finger. One error, they get back into the game totally in, in complete control against, you know, a PSG side that, yes, have a very aren't really much of a team unit, but are still intel- an incredibly talented group of players. P- Real Madrid toyed with them. Toyed with them. I mean, Real Madrid did to PSG what PSG do to the other teams in Ligue 1. So I, I think when you look at that performance and how well they're doing in La Liga, by the way, I think Real Madrid are easily, easily one of the favorites to win this competition. They are right in that conversation with City, with Bayern, uh, and with Liverpool, in my opinion. Alex, you missed one name in there when mentioning people, and that's Thibaut Courtois, who maybe not in this game, but in the first game, kept that game. If that's not for Courtois, that game is 2 nothing, 3 nothing game very easily. And we talked, you know, last thing I want to kind of wrap this up, I think, Look at, as I said before, a little bit of professionalism in terms of the teams. You have winners on the teams, but you also have people that have been through the battle. And you bring someone in like Courtois, who very similar to Donnarumma, you know, and it's funny because they're, you know, same guy, you know, the two starting goalies replace Kaylor Navas, uh, who is a fantastic goalie. I think he's starting to get older, but it's a fantastic goalie. Courtois was not very good his first season. Stepped it up. And, you know, in a very professional manner, now is one of the best goalies in the world. And I think maybe, you know, maybe behind De Gea this season has been the best goalie um, in the world. So at least for a shot stopping ability. So it's, it's interesting to me that, you, you know, you look at the midfield and you, then you look at PSG's team is you it's winners, but it's also people that have been through the grind before. Uh, besides for Messi, I mean, maybe, ne- you know, Neymar a little bit on Barca. Um, Ramos isn't playing. Don Room is young. 
Vinaldum doesn't play. Verratti's been on PSG forever. Di Maria doesn't play. And Mbappe's been on PSG. But again, it's also that. And, uh, where, where's where's the leadership on the field yeah. besides, besides like? And the thing is, PSG. You now the players come and go. Real Madrid has core group of players have been together since 2010, 2013, maybe 2015 at the latest. Right. Speaking but, of the, oh sorry. No, no, go, go ahead, Rusty. No, I was supposed to say speaking of that core group of players, I think someone who just deserves a shout out for kind of being a quiet presence, but someone who's sort of assumed a big role. Eder Militao, the center back, I I think has done really solid. Just replacing basically Sergio Ramos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I he's so. obviously big shoes to fill, but Militao yeah, at a young age, you know, has, has yeah, only 24. But young there is center, more champions. Young for Real Madrid center back. Sorry. No, no worries. There is more Champions League to get to this week. Uh, Manchester United, sorry to come back to them, uh, are playing Atletico Madrid at home at Old Trafford. The score tied 1-1 after a draw in Madrid this week. Um, what are we expecting from this? Because Atletico dominated the, the home game, but you know they, they come to Old Trafford now, and I think they have quite a job to do if they're going to remain in this competition. Yep, it's a tall order. Um, I don't think home field advantage has any play in here at all because Manchester United's track record at Old Traffic, uh, Old Traffic, Old Trafford uh, <laughs> over the past few seasons, uh, even if you want to take it far back, uh, has been horrendous. So I don't think that us being at home uh, is going to have any impact on our performance here. Uh, Ranić has said he needs an on-fire Ronaldo. I'd say that's pretty accurate. I don't. Uh, Maybe Jaden Sancho, but other than that, I don't see anybody in this United lineup really being able to step up and, and take on that task of being the one to, to push for that goal that we really need. Um, but I think this is still anybody's tie. I would lean, I would still lean Atletico, even if, uh, even with us forcing a draw uh, in Spain. Um, it's just our track record at Old Trafford is so bad. Um, and we're playing a really, really quality uh, side with a lot of talent. So I'm leaning Atletico still. Uh, might be considered an upset if they win. But, you know, United are struggling to find goals from anyone other than Ronaldo right now. And obviously we know the defensive issues, right? So, no, I don't sound very hopeful and I'm not. <laughs> yeah, for me. Anybody want to add to the funeral dirge? No, go, go ahead. Nobody was saying anything, so I was going to jump in. Go ahead, Rusty. No, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too um, – not – too high on either of these teams at the moment um just because i don't think either has been really playing to the best of their ability i think we saw much better atletico madrid last year and you know we all know the problems manchester united are going through um that being said i think when it comes down to what's basically a single leg knockout game now because it's one one with no away goals um, or away goals aren't important I think um, Atletico Madrid might actually be better suited for this because they can defend for a whole 90 minutes and just shut a team out. Um, that being said, uh, I think in terms of like game-changing talent, Manchester United have the edge, but the question is whether they can put all of that together. I mean, I personally would rather see United go through because I'd much rather play United than Atletico. Atletico are such a pain in the ass to play against. just the way that That's true. the organization, the fact that they foul players, they will do every little thing to get every minor advantage possible. And I, and I detest it, but I, I, I think Akshay, you know, you, you mentioned one player basically who can really step up and change this game. That's obviously Ronaldo. Um, and I think that will be the difference between the two sides. Ronaldo, you know he loves to score against Atletico Madrid. I mean, that goes back to, to his Real Madrid days. But even in Juventus colors, we saw him put a hat-trick against him. And this is the stage of the competition where, you know, we, we've seen him step up time and again. So I, I know you lean Atletico, and maybe as a team they are playing slightly better. But I, I just think that United, with the talent they have being at home and with Ronaldo's history of stepping up in this competition, and particularly against them, that I think United will just about edge it for me. I think that if United do go through, it's going to be on Ronaldo's foot. It's going to be something, you know, I would call it crummy, but it's, you know, everybody would say, oh, it's a great solid goal, you know, whatever. But I would call it crummy. I'm just going to say it now. And I hope that I'm wrong, right? I hope that they don't go through. But at the same time, I think the Ronaldo well is deep. And as he's kind of carried the team through most of the season, I think he'll come out with one more last gasp, you know, moment of, brilliance if you want to call like a little tap in like the like basically i'm expecting to say that didn't it i, I mean 
No, I'm, I'm really just expecting like exactly what happened at the end of the Atalanta game that sent Atalanta home. Like, okay, let's be real. Atalanta deserved to be dude. here. That was one hell of a finish. That was no, the one that finish. trickled through, the one that he hit in the box that right, like right. bounced off of like three different legs. All right. I'm expecting something like that to happen, like right at the end of the game. It's just going to be like they just hung around long enough and just came out with something. Okay, because let's be real. Atalanta deserved to be here over Man United. I mean, they played better through the through the stage. You know, they just love to shoot themselves in the foot because they play a beautiful style, but don't play defense because they play Martin Darun as, as a center back, which is a, a crime against humanity. So like back to that, back to Man United, though, like the well of Ronaldo is deep but it does run dry, right? So Ronaldo maybe can produce one moment of brilliance in this round, but I think following that, I, I think United are really going to run up against it and, and struggle to, to, to get out. So, uh, you know, I, I think I would like to play United in the next round because I do expect them to, but, but, like but Alex you, said, You'd rather it. play United than Atletico in the next round. Juventus oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. United, United of the teams left, that's what I'm saying. maybe Lille, but I think even then that's disrespecting Lille. They're probably... Lille is, Lille is very solid. Well, I, 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 had, I had predicted... Jesse, you would predict... I, well, well uh, let's get to Lille. They're 2-0 down. Yeah, let's oh, get to that one, actually. Wait, Jesse's got to get his... No, oh, Dylan, I, I don't know anyone that's picking Man U, what game you guys watched. I mean, I thought Man U just absolutely destroyed. Um, they had they, they, 63% in possession with the ball, did absolutely nothing with it um, versus Atletico. Atletico were much better on the counter. Lucky to have be a one nothing game, I think, if you're Alf Ragnar. They were talking about, you know, if they said around right around the 70th minute, they said, if you're him, are you? merchants. Yeah, they said, "Are you are you okay with the one nothing loss?" And they were, and the commentators were like, "Absolutely, with the way that they've played." Um, I think that this is a two nothing game, Atletico, and I don't think this is close. Uh, you know, Ronaldo's great. I don't really believe too much in like track records with you know Atletico. He's done this versus Atletico for years. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This team's not. This team's much worse, and they're not in in great form. They great win versus Tottenham off one person's foot and head. So. It's not all of a sudden they think they found their form. Uh, you get 2 nothing, yeah. Atletico. We'll see how that Don't tell Jeff out. that. But I, I think well, let's get to Chelsea against Lille. Um, Jesse, you had predicted a 1-0 win for Lille at Stamford yep. Bridge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have a question, though. Before, yeah, before we get into the game, before we get into the game, how are Chelsea going to get to Lille? Because if they can <laughs> only, only, in quotes, <laughs> only can spend 20K. This also, is... I have a bigger question. I have another question. If if Chelsea's sponsor three um, pulled the sponsorship deal, why are Chelsea still wearing their logo on their jersey? I this that feels very. This feels very super league sanctions to me because none of those sanctions went through, even to the teams that are still in the super league, of which there are three. So I don't know. It just smells a little fishy to me. I can answer the jersey question because I work in corporate merchandising. It really okay. is not that simple to replace that many jerseys with that much specific logo. Well, they can't. They can't crazy. buy new jerseys. That's the other they thing. They literally oh, can't buy oh, a new okay. jersey. They also, so, uh, yes, that also They should that. just have Good to point. put blue tape over it. I imagine the sponsor will get on them about that, and they'll have blue tape that over it tomorrow. So, but... That would be amazing. Yeah, we, we should start. We'll, 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 we'll get have, into that because we, we some should of these start a GoFundMe so that Chelsea amazing, can but... buy jerseys. We, we should start a GoFundMe <laughs> them. I think that's what, that's what we have to do. Um, but no, I mean, just the list of the list of sanctions um, or the, the list the consequences of Chelsea being sanctioned. So the sale can still go ahead. Uh, Abramovich can't. Uh, benefit from the proceeds um they cannot buy new players they cannot renew contracts uh big names uh who are out of contract at the end of the season espilicueta rudiger cannot sell new tickets season ticket holders can still attend though cannot sell club merchandise and crucially you know this is a big one when it comes to travel uh particularly in a big champions league match away from home credit cards are frozen so it will probably be the individual players who have to step up uh we know they're going to play they will play in Lille tomorrow um the question is Will they go through and will they be around to play a Bayern Munich or a Real Madrid uh, away from home or possibly an Ajax even? I personally think Lukaku should fund all of this for it as an apology no. to Chelsea and the players <laughs> for being so terrible all season. That's just my personal opinion. He should buy a private jet. They fly over there on Lukaku's money. Um, with that, though, Alex, this is exactly why I predicted Lille to go through. It's because I saw this go, you know, ahead of time. So that's great. Um you know, that's 2020 vision on my part. Hey, big brain. Yes, exactly, Ben. Um, the, the big thing that Chelsea did, and again, Akshay and I spoke on this last week, 
and I spoke on this a few weeks ago, is what has been the big difference in Chelsea's game in the, as a front three? They're starting to play Kai Havertz again up top. And the, what Chelsea are so good at is they have a very fluid front three where they're able to all interchange. And I feel like a broken record saying this, but I'm also going to keep repeating it until I'm wrong. Um, when you have Lukaku up there, he's, he can't play. He doesn't play on the wing. When you have talent like Mount Ziyech, who I think is br- a brilliant player, Pulisic at times as well, Hudson Adoy here and there, who I think is a little bit below those guys I just mentioned. When you have someone like Kai Havertz there, it's a very fluid and attacking front three, not to mention Kai Havertz is really good at making runs within the box. Very, he was a very expensive player for them him to, him, them to get. And they look much better with him in their front three than they do with Lukaku or Werner. Um, no hate to Werner. He just, he's had enough opportunities to be a star man. He's not, he, we know what he is at this point. He's not a bad player, but he's not a star man. Um, and he doesn't fit in that front. He's not as good as Havertz, Mount, um, or Ziyech. So what, how, how do we think this plays out in France? I think it depends on who they start up front. You, you, think, you think there's a route back in this for Lille, though? I do not. Yeah. I don't. I don't at this point, um, unless Jonathan David just goes off. So who, by the way, who, by the way, no, in all seriousness, is a fantastic player and will not be playing on the Lille next year. Um, I think with I mean, Chelsea still the way things usually go in Liga, he's probably going to PSG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we know that should end He'll up. He'll probably like... replace Icardi when Icardi leaves. Can we talk about like most pointless signings of the decade, by the way? Anybody who signs a Cardi is always a pointless signing. That's Juventus really just the fact that it was PSG. So we're all pretty much unanimous. Um, Chelsea, Chelsea to go through here. Yeah, I think so. I would say so. I think you shouldn't count out um, the potential distraction of, you know, everything that's going on at the club right now. Um, cause that, you know, you can't say that doesn't weigh on players' mentalities and Chelsea, we've seen their players have mentality issues already in the past. So I wouldn't say it's as clear cut as all that. Um, but I would still say, yeah, they're the pretty obvious favorites in the time. Yeah. It, it seems like they turned in good results. Sorry. I, I just, one last thing on Chelsea. It seems okay. like they turned in good results despite all this uh, uncertainty that's been unfolding over the last two weeks for them. And so as long as they just keep their mentality up and, and understand that it's not really a them problem and, and just focus because sometimes this can be exciting and rejuvenate a team too so this could go well for Chelsea but like Akshay said you know it's it's going to be hard for them to not let that weigh on them throughout the rest of the course of the season but the players still want to win as well and I think that's right they- exactly like they, they have a one job regardless of what's going on outside of their control so- I almost want to say specifically um, that the the way that Chelsea's upper management handles, especially in particular among these sanctions, the, the potential impact on travel uh, and the travel expenses limits, uh, that could have a huge impact on the players because, you know, these players, they're used to traveling in relative comfortability. Um, the way that they arrive, the manner in which they arrive, the time uh, at which they arrive uh, in, a, in a city, in a country for a given fixture uh, can weigh heavily on the eventual performance. So I think that's something important to count in. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get to Juventus Villarreal. Um, there's Ajax Benfica, um, but we're, we're going to focus on Juve Villarreal. Ben, you obviously get the first word here. Okay, so this is going to be a tough fixture for Juventus. I, I think it's going to be a tough fixture going uh, both ways, realistically. I mean, th- these are two teams that seem to always hang around, especially Villarreal, right? I mean, they're never going to get just their doors kicked in. Even last year against Porto, Juventus really put up a good uh, a good fight, right? And, and not saying that Juventus are the underdogs in this fixture because they're not, but Villarreal is a similar team in terms of mentality because they know that they're supposed to be here. Uh, this is not a team that's kind of lucked their way through. I mean, they worked through a tough group. They beat out Atalanta and Man United. Um, and, you know, this is a good opportunity for Juventus to really prove uh, that the wave that they've been on and riding since the end of December has been real. Um, they have the players and the talent to do it. It was honestly kind of a shock that this game ended in a tie in the first leg. But Juventus is a team that has this extra belief that's been forming. As the gap in the in the Serie A table tightens, they have started to believe in themselves as a team as well. And, and that can carry over to the Champions League if they can if they can make that work, right? Uh, the signing of Vlaovic, the bringing in of Zakaria, because even though he hasn't played, right? Like these are guys that, if the management is willing to bring that many players in in January and get off some of the dead weight, like a Benton core or Dayan Kulisevsky, you know, that spurs a team on and, and, and that could, you know, put Juventus through. Right. So I, I really think this is a good matchup to watch. I think it'll be an exciting game. 
Um, but I do think that Juventus will find a way to pull this one out. And I think it'll end 3-2 on aggregate. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think Allegri definitely would have been happy with, with the 1-1 draw. I, I mean, we knew what he was going to do going into going into the first leg in Solaria, which was set his team up. With the injuries. Team. I mean, you know, with injuries to both sides. I mean, Juventus have been struggling since, I guess, pretty much early February on an injury front. So Exactly. So I think he'll be content with that. You know, Vlavic giving them the lead within 30, 30 seconds. Dream start. Um, but yeah, I, I can see Juventus edging this one. You know, Juventus... Look, they should go through. They have a better group of players, but they should have gone through against Leon a few years ago. They should have gone through against Porto a few years ago, and they didn't. So Ajax too. Ajax as well. So Juventus have fallen against teams that historically, and you know, at least by name, are well below their caliber. But I think, yeah, I, I think they do just about nick this one. Um, Vlavic, I, you know, uh, Juventus are, are going to be heavily reliant on him. Murata has been in good recent form as well. Zakaria probably will not be back in time uh, for this game, but you know, after this Chiellini, game, I think is on schedule to be ready though, which should be a big help to Delict in the back, right? As opposed to playing Daniela Rugani back there. I mean, Daniela Rugani, holy smokes! I mean, does he not have the character to play in this game or what? I, I, I mean, not only that, how how's Rabio? Not the only Juventus player you could say. How that is Rabio still started? It, it's it's absurd to me. Why does Allegri keep playing him? I mean, he, well. I mean, I would just, I was going to talk more about Rabio than Allegri. I, I don't have, Allegri's done a fine job this year, I think. Fine. I, he can do better. I, th- I think there were some parts early in the season where you w- we wouldn't have gotten behind, but I think he's done fine. Um, as far as personnel goes, I, I think a bigger problem than Rabio is Alexandro. I mean, he is dreadful, truly dreadful. Uh, I'm going to say so she... mom slash agent. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she's a problem too because she signed her son's contract. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, with Rabio at this point, I mean, he's another one like Benton Corbett. Like he has some of these magical moments where he can dribble up the field when you're like, is that Rabio? And you can only tell because of the hair, really. But I don't know. He, I mean, Juventus will find a way, I think, to manage Rabio in this game and, and play even without him. I, I really think that he's a slight upgrade from Bentoncourt, but obviously a big downgrade from McKenney. So, I mean, they'll struggle their way through this. I, I've heard talks of Bernadeschi playing in the center midfield in this game, so that could be an interesting X factor. Um, but I, I really think that if Juventus figure out their personnel and they have a clear plan and they stick to it, uh, I think they've been very fortunate to get some good fast starts and have had much, much better defense down the stretch lately. And they've been in decent form domestically as well. Um, you know, we, we've seen them close that gap to, to Napoli, Milan to just, well, I don't, I know for Napoli, it's just four it's seven. Points. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's seven off the lead and seven to the next closest uh, person to fifth to fourth place. Right. Atalanta have a game in hand, right, but right. Lazio right now are seven points behind Juventus in fifth. So I, I think, uh, they put themselves in a very good spot and they're starting to believe. And that's what I was talking about earlier is, is they now see that, you know, this season's not a wash. There's a lot in reach right now, Absolutely. as far as everyone, as far as what Jeff said about everything to play for, I think Juventus actually do have everything to play for down the stretch. Mm-hmm. On that note, I think with that all being said, I would still argue that, if you look at Villarreal and the opponent that Juventus has in front of them for this tie, I'd be pretty scared if I was them, uh, just based off of the fact that Villarreal shares a lot of characteristics uh, with previous the previous Champions League opponents, uh, Alex, that you mentioned, who they've fallen short against in the past. Teams like Ajax, Porto, Lyon uh, are all very similar to this year's Villarreal squad in that they have a big point to prove about being able to graduate from the Europa League to the Champions League and have success there and also being a younger upstart team uh, with a history of upsets against more uh, giant teams like Juventus, like uh, Manchester United, if you want to talk about Villarreal uh, in the Europa League the past season. Uh, I think that's pretty dangerous if you're a Juventus fan. You're looking at that and you're saying, well, Villarreal shares a lot uh, of similarities with the opponents that we've had in the past that we were expected to be comfortably and didn't. Um, so I think that's a worry for Juventus. I do, however, agree with you guys. I think Juve will go through, um, but Villarreal are not to be, um, not to be counted out for sure. And I but think big fan of Peter Moreno. Fixture. Big fan of his. He's a great striker. Yeah. You know, Villarreal are perennial Europa League contenders and winners. And so they have a big point to prove this year. Uh, this is, you know, a real opportunity for them to make some noise in the Champions League proper. Uh, and I think they're not taking that lightly. And Juventus uh, yeah. are not either. 
Yeah, I agree with you guys in that. I think um, Villarreal, tough team to play against, definitely shown they can do it in the Europa League. Unai Emery um, also, I think, is a tough coach in these sort of competitions. But that all being said, Juve should go through, as you guys have said. They they just have too much quality. Um, I like Mass Allegri a lot as a coach. Um, hopefully, makes the right decisions from a Juve standpoint. So so we'll see if uh, how that all pans out. But I think Juve should go through. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up here, let's return to the Premier League. Uh, we obviously had a big result over the weekend between United and Spurs. I think enough has been said about that. Uh, we can go on and on about United. for We could talk about them for years and all the issues there. But a big result from earlier today, Manchester City dropping two huge points in a nil-nil draw against Crystal Palace, which puts them within potentially, potentially a point or rather, puts potential Liverpool within a point of them should they win at Arsenal on Wednesday. But what a result. What a result for Liverpool. What a result for Manchester City. And what a result for the title race. I, let's start this off, by by the way, by qualifying that this is a match that Manchester City, by all rights, should have easily won. Um, they blew more chances than Brighton on the average afternoon. Um, and these were, unlike some Brighton chances, these were like clear-cut open goal at times opportunities that they were missing. I think there were two or three uh, Vincent Gaita saves that fell literally right at the feet of City players, and they blazed them over the bar. Uh, it, it's unheard of for City with how clinical they usually are. It was crazy how many chances uh, they just blew right out of the water today. Um, Crystal Palace blew a couple wide-open opportunities of their own as well, but this is a match that should have easily ended five or six nil to City. So um, I think Vieira is very coy uh, when he said in the post-match interview that Crystal Palace earned their luck <laughs> today. Um, but it, I, I do also find it pretty curious that Crystal Palace seemed to be Man City's bogey team this year. Uh, they've now essentially done the league double over them. They get a nil-nil draw at home, uh, which, you know, it's not a win. So technically not the league double, but they beat them 2-0 at the Etihad earlier this season uh, of all teams crystal palace i just don't get it i don't get it uh citizen fans you shouldn't get it either uh but yeah this Patrick is the against uh his former club yeah. or one of his <laughs> former clubs but yeah you know grinding it back to the title race this is this is a huge result for liverpool uh, absolutely huge um it's now a four-point gap we were saying uh as many as as little as three uh weeks ago that you know, despite it being reduced to a six-point gap, Liverpool still had no chance of catching City. They now have every chance of catching City. And I believe they still have the reverse fixture to play against City uh, before the season is over. And that is probably going to be the biggest match of the of the season. So, And that changes my outlook completely going into the Arsenal game because I was actually quite nervous about that. You look at the form that Arsenal's in, uh, you look at, you know, I, I think one of the main issues with Liverpool defensively is that they their high line does give opponents some room to, to really get in behind. Yes, it's worked for them. I mean, there's no question Liverpool still continue to win. But look at some of the players that Arsenal have. Uh, you know, Saka as well. I think uh, the pace he has to get behind. And I, I was nervous. But this completely changes the outlook because now Liverpool know, they know that City are potentially within one point. Um, I think Liverpool come out the game. They come out firing at all cylinders, take control of the game. Uh, I think that's, you know, just, just mentally, that's what it does. I think when... You, if we had been in a situation where they had needed to win just to return a three-point gap, right? I think things could have gone downhill very quickly had Arsenal come out firing, taking the lead. We're playing good football, but now you know there's there's less pressure on Liverpool, and I think that's big. And I think that sort of hunger will will be there. I think if anything, that puts a lot of pressure on on Liverpool, right? And now them being so close, and and somewhat of that not being their own doing, really. Um, I think that these like, you know, results will give them some like level of confidence, but I, I think it also adds pressure too. And I think that's not something to be overlooked, right? Because obviously Liverpool have been there before, unfortunately, but like City have also been there before and they'll work themselves out. I think is kind of like a big thing. They're not like Inter or a team like that, who just is perennial bottlers and that they're just going to totally spoil this. I mean, Pep himself is not a bottler. There, there are a lot of things that you can say about Pep and not winning the champions league and blah, 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 blah. But you know, Pep is a great coach. He's a great motivational speaker. I mean, I, I listened to his um, interview that he gave the other day of talking about Kyle Walker's incident from the weekend and, and the way that he treats his players fairly like men, he doesn't really hide. He doesn't say like the you know correct answer all the time. He's like a Jose Mourinho that actually makes sense. And so I, I really think that if you think that, you know, Pep is going to take this one lying down, uh, I, I really don't think that, you know, 
he's going to allow his players to to kind of crumble under that pressure. So it's it's really on Klopp now. Yeah, I would starkly agree with that. Pep's teams do not choke. That is not something a Pep Guardiola team. They are choking, team. though. They are choking. They are. It's two results, uh, though. It's not. It's not like they're just dropping games left and right. I mean, they won two games. And yeah, let's think about that, Ben. Let's think. This is the standard that Pep's teams have set, where they've dropped. Realistically, they've dropped two results since we were talking about them as these sole favorites to win the title, and we're already saying that they have the potential to choke. That is the standard that Pep Guardiola. The gap is over ten points in January. And now it's four and Liverpool have a game in hand. So they, they are choking. It's not just been two games. It's been, it's been several games. And they no, also but they put games together games. in between them. It's not so much of like a choke job where they're just like, like if you want to look at a choke job, look at Inter Milan since the turn of the, the year, right? Inter Milan in 2022 is a choke job. Okay, they had the league locked up perfectly. Nobody was even remotely close to them. Juventus was down. Milan was, you know, and Napoli were okay, but they were still not great. Okay, if you want to look at, you know, Man City right now, like they still strung two wins in between their bad results, right? Yeah, it's not like it's not like they're losing. And Liverpool are pushing them. Row, right? Liverpool like, are also you, great. Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm looking at it right now, and Manchester City have only dropped seven points since October 30th, which it's is really a credit to Liverpool. Good. It's not a choke job by United or by City. I'm sorry. Like Liverpool have kept the press on the entire time. Just you know barring a good start by Liverpool. I mean, nobody said the wheels were falling off of Liverpool when they dropped those points early on either, right? No, that's true. That's true. And I think, you know, a lot of that is down to sort of the hunger and desire that Klopp has instilled in this team. This is a team that will never give up, that is prepared to go right down to the wire. And even, I think, back to, back in January, I forget who it's it was. It's been a two-horse race since October. But but Van Dyke, it was Van Dyke or someone who said, like, you know, we know the gap is significant, but we, we just have to continue doing our part. Um, we know, you know, Man City came back from a similar deficit a few seasons ago. And it's just that, that you know, the fact that they're not making any concessions and that that's clearly, clearly paid off for them. Um, but what, how, do, how do we think that the match at the Emirates plays out on Wednesday? Because Arsenal are also in fine form. They also know that they can put a, some pretty comfortable distance between themselves and Manchester United in that top four spot. Arsenal definitely clearly favored for that top four spot. Um, so I'll, I'll let you start off with this, Rusty. Yeah, um, it's going to be a tough one for both sides, I think. Um, both sides are in pretty good form, very good form, really. And um, I don't know who's going to win this one. I mean, Liverpool certainly should be favored. I think the issue with Arsenal is that it's still a pretty young and inexperienced team. Uh, this past weekend's game was the first time in a while where the team really um, – saw a game out in a calm fashion and, um, you know, got the lead early and didn't, you know, look shaky really at all throughout the game. Um, so that was a good thing against Leicester this past weekend, but, uh, Liverpool and Leicester, two very different teams. And I think, um, with Arsenal, I would hope, uh, from an Arsenal perspective that, uh, Takahiro Tomiyasu is is healthy for this one, because I think he'll make a big difference compared to Cedric Suarez, who, has done a very good job at right back, but they're different players in that Cedric likes to overlap. Tomiyasu more will tuck into midfield and uh, be more of a stabilizing presence. And I think that'll be pretty vital against this Liverpool team. Uh, Also, I think, as you said, with Saka and Martinelli, I think one of the things Arsenal can take advantage of tactically is how far forward uh, Robertson and Alexander-Arnold get. And I think I can see Saka and Martinelli sort of getting in behind and Martin Odegaard and Alexander Lacazette uh, taking advantage with those through balls. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of tactical sort of wrinkles to it, which will be interesting. But that being said, Liverpool have the experience and they have the quality they should win. Yeah, I don't want to add on to that by saying that I think it's important to note outside of Liverpool themselves uh, early on in the year in the EFL Cup semifinal, Arsenal really hasn't faced a defense with the level of excellence that Liverpool has in this calendar year. Uh, Yeah, they're in a great run of form, but they've still failed outright to score more than two goals against opposition, the likes of Brentford, Wolves, Watford, Burnley. Uh, Those are teams that if they want to stand a chance against Liverpool's defense, they need to be beating handily. And yes, they've been playing very well. They haven't been dropping points very often, um, but they still have not really, I would say, proven themselves, especially not in this calendar year, against the quality uh, of players like Virgil van Dijk, um, Alexander-Arnold, Oscar, or uh, I keep saying Oscar. Oscar. 
Andrew Robinson. Oscar Robinson is an NBA great, but and that's why he's so often in my head when I'm thinking. I, I, th- I thought you had him confused for like the, the former Chelsea midfielder. Oscar. No, 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 no. Oscar <laughs> also a, a great, also a great player. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's important to consider that uh, Arsenal's offense hasn't really faced a test this tough in 2022, uh, and for this reason, I do favor Liverpool heavily in this fixture, perhaps more so than a lot of people will. I think Arsenal's run of form is great but they haven't really been tested against uh, a, a quality defense. It's uh, one as strong as Liverpool's is. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking there's two ways that this can go, right? It is Arsenal have the game of their life and pull out a one, one draw or Liverpool just go in and batter them three, nothing, you know, I, I mean, there, there's really, there, there's really only two ways that I can see that game going. It's not Arsenal's definitely not going to batter Liverpool on the other end. Right. It's just about whether or not they can co- coalesce some like, really great defense and, and pull out the game of their lives this season, really. Um, and like, like Rusty said, I mean, really utilizing that sort of penchant for the Liverpool backs to get high, right? Because if they can overload moving up the pitch faster, you know, Robertson's fast, trends fast, right? But, you know, if they, if you really get one caught up the pitch, I mean, you can catch Liverpool. I mean, they're not infallible. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, you know, I think, had it been a six-point gap between Liverpool and Manchester City at the start of the game at the Emirates, and Arsenal came out really firing, taking the initiative on the front foot, Liverpool don't panic. But I, I think you know the nerves would start to creep in, and that's where Arsenal would have had a, a real advantage, especially with the crowd behind them. But now I, I think you know we're going to see a different Liverpool. Obviously, Liverpool you know still have their history against Arsenal, where they tend to batter them, but the initiative is now going to be on Liverpool. Um, and they know that there's less pressure on them. They know that, you know, that, that one point gap is, is there for, for, there for the taking. And I think that's huge. I, I think Liverpool edge this. I think this is one of those games where Arsenal give them a, a, a very difficult time, kind of similar to the, the Inter Milan game, the away leg at Inter, where we saw Inter cause some problems, but Liverpool just held out and, and get the result. I can see them doing that here. So I'm going to go 2-1. Talking tactics for a hot second, I do. Uh, I almost wonder if you're Mikel Arteta, do you just decide to take the game uh, to Liverpool from the out and push for an early goal uh, and basically be on the front foot offensively as much as that risks you defensively? Because I think if you're if you're looking at strategy for this match, um, yeah, Liverpool's attack is really potent, especially when you allow them to utilize their pace with that front three. Uh, it's a very counterattacking focused offense in a sense. Uh, it's one that relies a lot on speed. Uh, but if you're Arsenal's defense, I, I don't feel that you really counter that by sitting back and playing, you know, like a, a, a dreaded Mourinho style match where you absorb Liverpool pressure and force them to slow the game down on offense. I don't feel that works uh, with the quality of defense that Arsenal has. These are young defenders that have proven themselves in high pressure situations, but I don't feel that they're quite talented enough to keep Liverpool's offense out in that sense. So I think uh, if I'm Arteta, it almost might be more advisable to take the pressure off your defense. I, I would almost say if you're Arteta, uh, you solve that not by playing that Mourinho style and sitting back, but by taking the issue to Liverpool and but, forcing but, Liverpool's defense to do the majority of the work, right, especially but, in the first half. Real, I think the first half is really key in this one. Realistically, how long can Arsenal hold sort of a position where they're on the front foot advantage? Because Liverpool will go into the game. You know, Arsenal, even if they do play... play and that's, and that's, the, that's the thing, right? Is Liverpool is, will at some point take control of the game. Yes, and that's and that's the thing, right? And th- that's why it's, this is such a huge test for the Arsenal offense. Is okay? Do you have the quality to dominate a very strong all-around Liverpool team? Uh, because if they do, then they've truly proven themselves uh, as a new wave Arsenal team in the Premier League. But I think until they can take, can you know, until they can face up against the likes of Liverpool and make us genuinely doubt whether a team uh, with as much quality as Liverpool uh, could have a chance of losing against them. Uh, then I don't think Arsenal have quite proven themselves fully yet, and so this is a huge test for them. Well, Rusty, That's I mean, I'm it thinking wouldn't, it wouldn't be too dis- well either. Be, it wouldn't be too disastrous if they lost this game because they would still be a point above United with two games in hand. Yeah, Ben, uh, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to go like based on perception, right? I mean, I, I think that's why this game is going to be like the lower scoring. That's why I went with that one-one draw earlier as like my initial gut feeling because I think this game's going to actually be a lot more tentative than people think, at least for the first half. I, I really think this game's going to end zero zero at the first half because like Akshay said, you know, it'd be great if Arsenal could go out and overload and, and get that first goal. But 
I don't think they're going to be able to. I think both teams are going to come out really tentatively because they know how much this game means. And while Arsenal still has some games at hand and they have, you know, the points advantage on United behind them, I really think it's a perception thing if they drop back out of the top four. Yeah, I, I actually, I agree with you there. I agree with um, what both Ben and Akshay have said in, in the sense that I think if you're Arsenal, it's a very inexperienced team. And this Arsenal team, even against Watford, has had trouble holding leads. So I, uh, I think if you're Arsenal, you don't want to go uh, entirely on the front foot from the get-go. I think you want to play a pretty balanced game. And um, I think if you play too defensively, uh, as I believe Akshay said, you have young defenders. They have proven themselves, but we have seen um, ben White specifically this season, he has has a mistake in him from time to time. Tries to get a little bit too cute on the ball sometimes when he's dribbling through uh, pressing attackers. So I think if you're Arsenal, you have to sort of have that balance. I think Arteta has gotten a lot better, but I think part of it is oddly enough, if you're Arsenal, you don't want to score too early because as we've seen, uh, Arsenal can't hold a lead, um, or if it gets a big lead. Um, then you know it's always shaky. So I think um, if you're if you're Arsenal, you're you're gonna want to you know try to control the game and also make sure Liverpool isn't get, having their way with your defense basically and getting into the positions that they want. Akshay, before we wrap up, let's get you in here. Yeah, one more tactics point I want to make. Uh, this is regards to Arsenal's offense. Um, I think if you're Arteta again, I think you advise your attackers, especially guys like Smith Rowe um, and Saka take the issue to Liverpool's centre-backs. Um, you've got two centre-backs that are excellent. And uh, in, in, I'm assuming that the starters will be Matip and Van Dijk for this one um, in, this, in this point. But I would say those are two guys that are very good, very talented, world-class centre-backs, but pace is not the strong suit for either of them. Uh, and if you're looking at an offence like Arsenal's, which is uh, similar to Liverpool's, I should say, um, very counter-attack based, deadly uh, when given space to move and to run and to distribute the ball and use pace. Uh, Arsenal have an advantage if they're working through the middle and using that pace and using that pace to beat uh, the likes of Van Dijk and Matip. And so I think if you're if you're Arteta, you're looking at that weakness in Liverpool's defense and saying, OK, Emil, uh, you know, uh, Bakayo, <laughs> thinking of first names, um, you guys just run at Van Dijk, run at Matip, make them chase you down. Uh, play balls in behind to your pacey attackers because that uh, is probably your primary best bet of getting past Liverpool's defense. Mm -hmm. Well, before we wrap up here, uh, any any final thoughts? Any of you care to add anything? Um, I'm just looking forward to watching Martin Odegaard play soccer again. It's it's always a good time when he's on the field, no matter what. So just enjoying the football. Yeah, hoping for a great game out of this Ajax match uh, uh, this week, you know. I actually think Ajax go through. They're not a team I'd want to face. I'd rather face Ajax than – than. sorry, I'd rather face – Champions League dark horse. I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather face United than Ajax, to tell the truth. Rather oh, face yeah, United sure. than anybody left in that tournament. That's fair. <laughs> um, but with that, I'm Alex Purry alongside Akshay Wadwani. Jesse and Jeff uh, had to sign off a bit early, as you could probably tell. But as always, a big, big thanks to Rusty and Ben for hopping on. And we will see you with much disgust next week.